This morning, we are picking back up in the the book of Romans after stepping away for a couple of weeks to celebrate what God is doing through our our music ministries and through our our student ministry uh, program. And it's important that we remember that the entire reason that that Paul wrote this letter to the church in, in Rome was to give them some sort of direction, some sort of direction, some sort of answer when they say, well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? So, so he writes this letter kind of laying out the basics for what the gospel, what he means when he uses the word gospel. And then, in addition to that, what it looks like to share it. Uh, remember, uh, I've been saying kind of over and over again, if there's one thing you, you pick up this year as we're, we're journeying through Romans, is that we should picture Paul showing up at the door of the church, holding that letter, saying, I've got good news. That that's what Romans is about. It's about Paul coming and saying, hey, church, church, I've got, I've got good news for you. We're in Romans 10 today in the middle of this, this section that, that focuses on the sovereignty of God, which is really just a, a fancy way of saying that, that God is in control, a reminder that, that God has a plan even when that plan doesn't make sense to us. Even when we look out and say, what in the world is God doing right now that we acknowledge that God is up to something. When we say that, that God is sovereign, that, that's essentially what we mean. And, and for Christians, the, 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 one of the most straightforward definitions that we can have for that word gospel is God making the world right. God making things right in the world. And for Paul and for us, that is done through the person of Jesus. God makes the world right through the person of Jesus. And as we've seen, much of the book of Romans is either Paul wrestling with what that means for himself, kind of asking himself questions and wrestling with with what that looks like, or answering questions that he had heard or that he had thought he would hear. So a a few weeks ago in in Romans chapter 9, the question was all around the people of Israel, around Paul's family, Paul's Paul's friends, and and where they fit into the big picture. And and it's clear that that in that chapter, he himself is grieving. He, He writes, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for their sake, so that they might know the power of the gospel. I'd be willing to give up it all for, for their sake. And then he goes into this, this imagery of, of pottery, remember. And we talked about the reality that, that one of, of the things that we accept is, is, is God's people, is that God is God and we are not. God is the master craftsman molding us. And that takes time. And that takes time. So Paul asks the question, when, when does the, the pottery turn to the craftsman and say, hey, let me tell you how to do your job? God is God, and we are not. That's another way of saying, hey, God is sovereign. Chapter 10 begins with a a sort of urgency, that same sort of urgency that Paul had for his own people. He writes, believe me, all I want, all I want for for Israel is what's best, salvation, nothing less. I want it with all my heart, and I pray to God for it all the time. Then in verse 5 of chapter 10, we read this. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, 
That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last night, our, our family sat down for, for dinner, and our, our kids were talking about today. Our kids were talking about Father's Day, and, and they really wanted to have some fun with it. Haley was trying to, to shush them, to, to let some of today be, be a surprise. And our youngest, who is, is five years old, kept trying to whisper in my ear. She was sitting to the, to the right of me. And the rest of the table would say, no, 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 don't say anything. Don't say anything. And after a, a, a few mixed attempts with, with gibberish and, and laughter, she finally whispered a legible word in my ear. Nothing. <laughs> the rest of the table piped up. What did she say? What did she tell you? Nothing. She said nothing. And the laughter continued. It was definitely one of my more proud dad moments that, that she, she has a, she's pretty funny. She has a, a, a great sense of humor. And while I was preparing for this morning's sermon, I, I read something I wrote about six years ago and was reminded of another proud dad moment. I was in the, the kitchen and our oldest daughter was around the corner in the living room, not quite four yet. I, I couldn't see her, see her. And I was doing something in the kitchen, and, and she was, was by herself in the living room. It was a quiet morning, and out of nowhere I could hear this faint, sweet voice. It is well with my soul. It caught me off guard. I thought, what? Is she really singing that? Is she really singing? Then I heard it again. It is well. It was a memorable enough moment that I went and, and, and wrote it down. Our daughter, who wasn't four yet, who's now almost ten, was singing a lyric that has been passed down through generations and generations of the church since the late 1800s. Now, even though she didn't learn the, the song the same way that I did, or the same way that you did, with the same melody, with the same instrumentation, she knew the song. I asked her last night if she remembered it, and I started singing it, and, and she, she still knows that song. She didn't know the, the meaning of the lyrics then, and she might not even realize the significance of them now, but she knows them. And my prayer is that, that someday... When her life gets difficult, and it most definitely will at one point or another, she'll hear that familiar tune. And will have words that remind her that she's not alone, that God is with her. Now every hymn tells a story. 
Every hymn tells a story. And I'd encourage you to go and look up the story of Horatio Spafford, the, the, the lawyer who wrote the lyrics for It Is Well with, with My Soul when you get a chance. I won't spoil the, the story for you, but uh, he was a dad who lived through quite a bit of pain. Quite a bit of pain. And even though he couldn't make sense of all that he was experiencing, that he couldn't grasp the reality that, that what is God doing in the middle of this? What, where is God? Out of that, he wrote these lyrics. And in the same way that It Is Well is a song that has been sung in the church and passed down for 150 years, the part of Romans that we are in today attempts to retell a story that had been passed down through the generations. Paul was, of course, very familiar with the story, and uh, his first readers were likely familiar with it as well. He's referring back to Moses and the words that were said to the Israelites before they entered the Promised Land, where they were told, God's word is close to you. If you follow God's commands and, and keep God's promises, blessings are going to come. But if you don't, look out. Exile is coming. And of course, exile came, but, but as, as Pastor Dale read earlier from Deuteronomy 30, even in exile, God promised that if they turned back to God, they'd be rescued. They'd be rescued. So Paul is using this example from his, his people, the history of his people, a story that would have been passed down from generations to generations to ask another kind of hypothetical question about God's sovereignty for the church in Rome. And that question is, if God is really sovereign, if God is really in control, then what are we supposed to do in those moments where God feels distant? What are we supposed to do then? Our people experienced it. Israel experienced it. We will surely experience it too. What do we do then? And he uses this important historical example to illustrate that we're only really made right with God through the person of Jesus Christ. And he gives three simple truths to to illustrate that reality. First, starting in verse 5, Paul reminds us that, that we can't save ourselves. He quotes directly from Leviticus 18. On the surface... It looks as though Moses was teaching about the possibility of obtaining salvation through keeping the law. And that's probably how most Israelites would have read what was written there. But Moses is also requesting something impossible. Following the law absolutely perfectly. Every part of it. If you could do it all then, and only then, you would be righteous. So Paul plays off that mindset and says, actually, we don't have to ascend to the heavens to discover salvation, nor do we have to search the depths to somehow rescue the Messiah. He's turning to the church in Rome and saying, look, you're bending over backwards to try to find salvation for yourself. You're trying to save yourself. And a lot of people in first century Rome would have bought into that story, would have bought into that that lifestyle, including the first century Jews, but also including the the Roman citizens. 
They would have worked and worked and worked to assure that they were right with God. One of my uh, favorite comedians of all time is Jim Gaffigan. Anybody know Jim Gaffigan? A couple of people know Jim Gaffigan. Jim Gaffigan's got this uh, uh, incredible routine. He's, he's a devout Catholic man. He's got five kids, and uh, he, he's got this routine where he's, he's talking about parenting right after his fourth child was born. He says, if you want to know what it's like to have four kids, imagine you're drowning and someone throws you a child. Here in Romans, Paul is saying, if you think you can make yourself right with God, imagine you're sinking and someone throws you another weight to carry, another law that you have to follow, another way for you to try to save yourself. And yet the prevalent thought of the day was, work harder, work harder, and then you'll be made right with God. Paul suggesting anything else would have been uh, insulting to a lot of people. Receiving something for, for free that you don't work for, something uh, you, you didn't have to earn, it just didn't seem right. For the, the early church, and especially the, the Jewish converts, this whole idea, it was a stumbling block. And I think it's a stumbling block in our culture today, too. We work hard to earn what we, what we have. We take pride in it. And asking for help, it's often seen as a weakness. And yet here, Paul is saying, if you want to be made right with God, you have to accept that you can't save yourself. You can't do it on your own. We're only saved through what Christ has done for us. Paul continues. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Put simply, we're saved by confessing publicly and believing inwardly that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. When Eugene Peterson translates Paul's words here, he, he equates confession to embracing something with, with our whole selves, with our body and soul, confessing it and feeling it from the depths of who we are. In one of the, the writing groups that I was a part of while, while working on my doctoral project, in, in a moment of frustration, someone posted that she felt like all we were will, really learning in this, this project of, of writing was how to make something simple more difficult. How, how to take something that you could say in one sentence and write it in three pages. She meant it tongue-in-cheek, but there's, there's some truth to what she said. In more ways than one, the first confession of, of the Christian church is Jesus is Lord. Simple. Jesus is Lord. And we have spent a long time taking those three words and making it much more difficult than it really has to be. Jesus is Lord. In Paul's world, in Rome, the term Lord was reserved for Caesar Saying that Jesus is Lord, it meant that Caesar was not. Jesus is Lord. 
And of course, saying Jesus is Lord was a, a giant threat to the Roman government, to the, the Roman way of life. And in what would have been seen as the ancient world, the Israelites only used the word Lord whenever the word Yahweh appeared in Hebrew Scripture. It was just too holy of a word to say out loud. So you would say Lord. And both those cultures, Jesus as Lord was, was clear. And it, it's all that it meant to be. Jesus is Lord. Confessing that Jesus was Lord meant that, that early Christians believed with their whole selves that, that he was Lord over Rome, that he was also Israel's God. In the same way, when we confess today that Jesus is Lord, we're saying that everything else, everything else is secondary. Where we live, what we do, our family roles, where we go to church, we surrender all those things and say, Jesus is Lord over all of them. And then Paul goes on to say that, that there is no Jew and Gentile, that the same Lord is, is Lord of all. And he quotes again from the Hebrew Scriptures, this time from, from the book of Joel. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Galatians, Paul uses the same line. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, there were plenty of people during Paul's day who believed uh, that, that because of what they believed, that they held a privilege. And he says over and over and over again, hey, that's, that's not true. Everyone is everyone, everyone who confesses with their lips and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord is saved. The idea of Jesus alone being Lord, it's one that if we think about, it can kind of make us uncomfortable because it means that other things in our lives can't be Lord. There's been many times as a pastor where I've been asked to either officiate a friend's wedding or preside over one of my uh, or one of their parents' memorial services, uh, e even though that friend didn't necessarily or doesn't necessarily share the same belief system that I have. And I remember early on thinking, why in the world are you asking me? Why? We, we don't believe the same thing. Why, why are you asking me? It was really uncomfortable. I, I would think things like, how am I supposed to confess that Jesus alone is Lord in a space where I'm full of people who don't necessarily agree with me? Why did this person ask me in the first place? I've found comfort in this passage and in passages like it. My role in those situations isn't to make promises that I can't guarantee, nor is it to stand up and try to, to convert them by saying, hey, here's where I'm right and you're wrong. My, my responsibility there is to simply show up, is to simply show up and, and live my life in a way that proclaims that Jesus is Lord. And this is also where I think Romans 9 comes into play. Paul shares his agony about his closest friends, about how they, they, they didn't know Jesus. 
And I know it's been a few weeks since we looked at it, but, but we need to ask ourselves if we share that same sort of burden. I'm not sure I always do, as I said a couple weeks ago. But if we do believe that Jesus is Lord over all, our role isn't necessarily, as I said, to convince other people that we're right, that they're wrong. To somehow convert them if they don't see eye to eye with us. Our role is to simply show up. To live in a way that reflects that Jesus is Lord over our lives. Which should then in turn invite conversations about what that means. The simple truth is, we're only made right with God through Jesus. And everything else is secondary. My hope is that we here at Westminster would be a church that lives into that reality. We, we would cling to the truth that we can't save ourselves. We're called to confess that Jesus is Lord. And in doing so, really believe that there is only one Lord who is sovereign over the entire world. Let's pray. Sovereign God, Lord, help us to remember that you are in charge, that you are in control, even when we can't see it, even when we have questions, even when we don't understand. Thank you for the gift that you have given us. Help us to receive it with open arms and to live in a way that invites others to experience the peace and joy and love that you offer. We pray these things in your name. Amen.